I want to open in prayer. I believe that the that the Lord has a word for every single one of you. We've been going through the first five chapters, the seven letters to uh, the various churches in Asia Minor, and that is found in chapters two and three. And it always says to him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And there's more than one local body here, the churches, and we're gonna pray. I'm gonna pray right now. That God would give us ears to hear what the Spirit of God is longing to speak to our hearts. And, and may every word of Mike Curtis that is not of the Lord fall to the ground. And may only those words that the Spirit of God is wanting to impart to us, may they be, will fall on your ears and be found in your heart that you can live by them. Amen. Because we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word as well. Amen, church? Is that right? Amen. Okay. I want you to feel comfortable to say amen, all right? Amen means so be it. This is truth. As, as a church, we just learned that last week. This is truth. So when you say amen, you are in agreement. This is truth, all right? So Father, we ask that your spirit right now would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to receive what your spirit is trying to say to us. The Father, where the flesh is warring against us, Lord, quiet that voice. We want to hear the voice of the good shepherd. Would you speak to us through your truth, God, right now, in the precious name of Jesus Christ, amen, amen. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 133. That happens to be a verse, the very first verse that uh, Pastor Franklin quoted as he was doing communion. Uh, I'm actually going to be preaching on that. I'm not sure I told you that or not, but I'm going to be preaching on just three simple verses. And I want us to dig into it because I believe it has tremendous application. And you're going to find it's not just application for you know what's going on here as far as churches coming together, but it is going to, I believe, have profound impact on how we live day to day in our homes as well. Amen. How many of you are familiar with John Heisman? John Heisman. How many of you are familiar with the Heisman Trophy? Come on. Okay, there we go. There we go. John Heisman coached Georgia Tech in 1916. I'm sure he did it more than just that one year. But did you know that he also coached baseball? Cumberland, the, uh, a college, played Georgia Tech in baseball the spring before they played them in football. When they played in baseball, and John Heisman was the coach there, uh, Cumberland beat them 22 to nothing, just destroyed them. Now, there's an opportunity. John Heisman, his team, Georgia Tech, is playing against that very same college, Cumberland Bulldogs. A different story, however. It is known as the greatest blowout in football of any kind in American history. During that game, they were the, the, the uh, Georgia Tech football team was just crushing the Cumberland Bulldogs, just crushing them, forced nine fumbles. And one of those fumbles, the quarterback got to the snap, dropped the ball, and he looked to the running back and he said, pick up the ball, pick up the ball. And the running back just stood there and said, you dropped it, you pick it up. Yet what, what an outward sign of what was really going on in their team. A lot of disunity. Now, some people say that John Heisman, as the coach, 
purposefully racked up the score as a form of revenge for when he lost in the baseball game. The final score, by the way, was 222 to nothing. Yes. Now, I think all of us, whether we're in the workplace or in our family or in your church or community, anything, you understand the concept of teamwork. But I'm not talking about teamwork today, but I am talking about what's at the heart of teamwork in any kind of team. Your favorite team that has won the Super Bowl, like when the Eagles won. Okay, I'm not going there, sorry. Born and raised 30 minutes south of Philly, uh, hoping that the Phillies, they're one game behind Atlanta. We'll see what they do, right? But in, 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 in baseball, in any kind of team, there's this concept of teamwork. But I want to go beyond teamwork, and I want to speak to this issue of unity. Unity is at the heart of teamwork. If you don't have unity on your team, you can't do teamwork. But I want to go beyond unity, and I want to talk this morning to you about the very heart of unity, which is either what, Franklin, you, pre- you prayed in the room there or here. I-, I can't remember. I'm getting old now. I can't remember one moment to the next sometimes. But he was praying, Lord, that they may know we are Christians by our love. That's right. And at the heart of unity is love. So I'm going to read to you Psalm 133 that says everything to do with unity. The word unity is even found in the text. But I want to go, I I want to talk about unity amongst us. But I want to talk about unity maybe in your home, in your relationship with your spouse. And what is it that we need to do to see unity there? Because when we study this passage, there's amazing truths that we're going to discover that are for you and are very personal, very applicable. I'm reading from the New International Version. Excuse me as I put my old man glasses on. Psalm 133, verse 1. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in, help me out, church, unity. It is like, excuse me, in the Hebrew, the definite article is there. It is like the precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It's as if the dew of Hermon, Mount Hermon, were falling on Mount Zion. For there, the Lord commands his blessing, even life forevermore. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters, so you know, dwell together. Not just do a service together. Though that's, I think that's significant. Don't you think that's significant? For two churches... We could probably fine-tune our theology and find some differences maybe between Franklin and I, but apart from the gospel, it doesn't matter. I mean, we want to know and we want to stand in what we believe is truth, but the only hill I'm willing to die on is the hill of Calvary, is the hill of the cross. It is the cross and the resurrection. That is the core of what we believe. Is it not truth? Is that not truth? You can say amen. That's okay with me. And so consequently, for us to dwell together just for like two hours in unity, the psalmist says that is how good and pleasant that is. Because there's something in us, especially in whether it's philosophy or politics or church or whatever it might be, even in our relationship with our spouse, we want to be right. Have you ever not wanted to be right? Boy, I hope I'm wrong when in this argument. And as a result of us wanting to be right, that so many times leads to argument. And it disrupts unity in the church, 
in between neighbors in our homes. The issue is pride. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to that. But how good and pleasant it is when we can get past ourselves, when this guy can get past Mike Curtis, and he can see others, people whom Jesus died for, and that I am willing to crucify my flesh so that I can love them and serve them and not always want to be right. Amen? How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters can live together, can do life together in unity. Today, we're just in this little example or microcosm of unity. The words that we hear today, the, the truths that we learn today, bring them back to your home. Bring them back to Safe Harbor. Powerline, bring them back next week and Wednesday night. Let's, let's live in this. Let's do life together like this. So the first thing I want to do, look at verse 2 there. It says, it is like the precious oil. Now, the precious oil that he's talking about is that oil that's used to anoint the priest, and in this particular case, Aaron was the high priest. Church, so much significance here. I want to unwrap for you. This is that precious oil, definite article, the precious, not just any kind of oil. Did you know that the priest was anointed with a very special oil? In here, the psalmist uses the word precious. It's a very specific type of mixture of uh, myrrh, cinnamon, among other spices, and olive oil. And you could not duplicate that. It could only be used to anoint priests. You actually anointed kings and prophets with just normal oil. But this oil, specifically for priests, and in this case, the high priest. You are not allowed to duplicate this and use it for anything else. Unity is like this. Unity is like this precious, very specific oil designated only for anointing of priests. What's, why, why, when he's talking about unity, why does he want to bring this up? Church, I want to tell you, in America, wherever you are in this world, man is always wanting to bring some unity together. Man will always try and create some sort of utopia. Engel, Marx, they tried to create a, a, an ideology, a philosophy that we call communism today that preempts the necessity of God. We're going to get God out of the picture, and as man, we're going to unify ourselves. And they had a way of doing that that was without God and I'm going to tell you this, communism will never, ever work for three reasons. Number one, as hard as we may try anywhere, even apart from communism, apart from the word of God, scripture, we will never be able to be unified. Number one, because God says we were born in sin. God says that no matter how hard you try, you're going to do, you have to constantly deal with that sin in your life. And scripture tells me Romans 6, that I, apart from Christ, am a slave to sin. It says that I'm actually, apart from Christ, an enemy of God. And I just want to challenge you this morning that if you don't know Jesus, if you have never, as, as Franklin was sharing with us, the truths that are behind communion, if you have never been rescued from that slavery of Egypt or sin, if you will, 
and you're still lost in your sin, there's no way that you can truly be unified because that sin will always make you stumble. The second thing is that we, as Christians, we have the rescuer, the savior, the one who can rescue me from my sin. He, has the, he is the answer to that heart problem of Mike Curtis. Mike Curtis's problem is sin, his flesh. I needed to be rescued from that. And can I say, I need to be rescued from it every day. God has given me freedom, but church, there is a tendency for us given freedom, not, no longer slaves to sin, that we still tend to wander back into that slave cell. Mike, what are you doing there? Church, if, if that's where you are today and you're caught up in the sin, what are you doing there? Christ came to set you free from that. He is the answer to that sin problem. And then thirdly, I need us to realize that when we are rescued, and now remember this whole thing has to do with why the world can't experience unity and why you as a follower of Jesus can. The third thing is that God has put his spirit in you and he has changed you. Jesus used the term born again. Paul said, you become a new creation. You're transformed. Isn't that amazing, church? I'm transformed. And you know what? As a result of that, God has placed his spirit in me and he's put his love in me. That's why, brother, you're so right. Jesus said, this is how they're going to know that you're Christians by your love. This is how they're going to know you're my disciples. This is how they're going to know you're following me because you look just like me. You know, maybe not the beard and such, but you're going to look just like me. You're going to love the way I love. How did Jesus love? He laid his life down. That's at the heart of unity. That's why you have been empowered to do this, and the world can't do it. They can dream as much as they want, but apart from God, they can never be truly unified. But this has been given to us. This has been given to you, including in your home, not just among churches. I'm going to get there in just a moment. The oil is not just particular for the priesthood, and is not to be duplicated. The world can't duplicate unity, church. But it is also abundant. Do you see here? It drips down his beard, drips onto his collar. The clear imagery is an abundance. It was actually poured. You know, James 5 says, anoint people with oil. I kind of chicken out. You know, the elders, you know, when they're sick, they anoint them with oil. And I just do a little bit on my finger. And they didn't do that in the old time. They took the whole thing. They just poured it on their head. Okay, so and if we're praying for you when the service is done, I promise I'm not going to pour it on your head. But I want you to know that's what they did in anointing priests, prophets and kings as well. But priests is our focus this morning, specifically for this text. And it was just abundant. I want to tell you that when unity gets a hold of the people of God the way it's supposed to, it is abundant. It flows. It's going to seep into every nook and cranny of your life. You're not just going to be transformed for Sunday morning. You're going to be transformed every day of the week. Is that not true, church? Yeah, thank you. Amen. You see, God has called us to have the Spirit fill us to overflowing and walk in that unity, walk in that love. It's going to permeate every aspect of your being. That's the power of unity. Well, perhaps that's the power of God as he's bringing unity. The third thing I want us to see here is that the oil anoints. 
Now again, very specific oil for anointing the priest. This isn't an analogy of anointing a prophet or anointing a king, but anointing a priest. Why did a priest need to be anointed? Here's why. And especially the high priest, since that's the example that's given here. The priest, and only the priest, was permitted to minister in the presence of God. And especially the high priest, once a year, he would go back into the Holy of Holies. Now, there's a lot of things that he did that I'm not going to get into, but specific to this anointing oil, that then consecrated him for this very purpose, to go into the presence of God. And I, th th that wasn't for the prophet. Prophets couldn't go into the temple like that. Kings, King Asa tried doing that, and boy, did he get in trouble, right? Only the priest. Why the priest? I think here, I want to lay this out, this truth out before you. I believe the reason why the psalmist chose this analogy of the priest in this particular element is because the priest, and only the priest, was consecrated. That is, he was anointed so that he would be set apart as holy. Set apart as holy. Because without holiness, you could not see the Lord. That's what Hebrews tells us. So here is the priest. He's been anointed by this oil, an outward symbol of this consecration, this holiness that is placed upon him by God's spirit, and now he can minister before the temple. The next two Psalms, by the way, talk about priests ministering before the Lord. I'm, I think what he's trying to tell us is this anointing, excuse me, this pouring out of unity that comes down Aaron's hair, his beard onto his collars is not just very specific for God's people. It's precious, not just in its abundance, but it consecrates you to be in his presence. You know, it's, I've, I've always thought it interesting. When you become a believer, the Holy Spirit indwells you. Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. That's what, the, that's what the word of God promises you. As a believer in Jesus, the spirit of God is in you. But Jesus said this. He said, where two or more of you are gathered, there I am in their midst. Well, wait a second, Jesus. Why didn't you just simply say, hey, if, it's, if you're all by yourself, there I am in your midst. But there is something special that Jesus is trying to point out here, that when two people are gathered in Jesus' name, in concert, in unity, in his name, my presence is there. And I can't explain it, but just in a different way than when, it is, when he is in our hearts. When we, the Spirit of God, Jesus himself, is here in our midst. And, and it's just in a different way than when he walks with me personally day by day. Scripture also says in Psalm 22, he says that the, he's tabernacled on the praises of his people as they're worshiping God. Their focus isn't on one another, it's on God himself, and he dwells upon their praises. Psalm 22, 4. My, my point is this. When there is unity, there is the presence of God in a way, some people call it the manifest presence of God. It's just the presence of God is there in a different, unusual way. Luke tells us, that the power of God was present to heal. So Jesus healed. Here's my point then. 
And I believe that when we look in the New Testament, when, when we're coming to the end, we're going to see a picture of this in Acts chapter 2. But when the people were gathered together, God did amazing things. And as his presence was there, not just in their hearts, but amongst them moving, God did amazing things. And I'm going to promise you that if we learn, if you learn to dwell with your spouse, with your children, with your local church, with what the scripture calls the city church, believers fellowshipping together, if we can learn this principle of unity, God is going to move in our midst beyond what we can imagine. Okay? Back in the 1980s, Argentina had lost in the Falkland War to Great Britain. That tremendously humbled that nation. And they began to cry out. The Christians all across denominations began to cry out, God, please move in our midst. Do something in our nation. Argentina had been humbled. Falkland Islands were not that far off their coast. Now, Great Britain owned those. They, were, they had the rule over it, and the people even wanted Great Britain to rule, but Argentina didn't, and so they had a war. And they lost, and they were humbled. Because the war took place in their backyard, and they lost. Here's what happened. Among other things, the pastors said, with Jesus Christ as, and his gospel alone as our focus, we will gather together. Pastors gathered together. Stories of washing one another's feet of simply serving one another. They would trade pulpits. They, they would do whatever they could to serve each other and serve with one another. The churches themselves, not just the pastors, the churches began to do this. They would gather in soccer stadiums, and they would pray and sometimes have all-night prayer vigils. The Spirit of God began to do something beyond their requests or imagination. One particular prison had over 2,000 inmates, 1,700 of them, church, and I do not lie, 1,700 of them came to Christ. They had a pastor set in in that jail, in that prison, training other pastors, and he raised them up, and the warden permitted them to go to other prisons, transform, tr transferred them, and began to pastor, and, and God began to bring about revival in those prisons. You can check this out. But because pastor said, you know what, I am tired of speaking negatively about that other brother, regardless of how he thinks about this particular topic, we agree together in Jesus Christ, and we are one. And I tell you what, the anointing of God came upon that nation. Three million in that decade were one to Christ. That's the statistic that's given, three million. Can you imagine if that type of unity and that type of outpouring of God's Spirit happened here in Sanford? Oh, God, please, please, God, do something in this city and amongst your people. But the, the analogy, the second analogy goes on. And he likens it to the dew that's on Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon is in the north of Israel. Mount Hermon is almost 10,000 feet tall, 9,200 I've been told to be exact. Mount Zion, a little bit smaller, only 2,500. So Mount Hermon is about four times higher than Mount Zion. Now, I want you to just picture this in your mind. 
You understand the concept of condensation, right? Okay, like when when it's uh, when it's uh, cold outside, and you have the heat on, and sometimes it can produce condensation on your windshield, or or vice versa. But when the moist air rises in Mount Hermon, it is so cold that overnight the dew actually falls. Well, granted, very slowly, but the dew falls out of the atmosphere and clings to the ground. I want you to imagine, and it's more than this, but four times the amount, excuse me, all of the, the dew on Mount Hermon, which would be four times the amount on Mount Zion, falling on Mount Zion. In the Old Testament, dew is poetically is regularly paralleled with rain. Dew and rain, it refreshes the ground. It brings forth seed for the sower and bread for the eater, Isaiah says. If it's in abundance, it waters the ground thoroughly and produces what? An abundant harvest. I need us to hear an abundant harvest. The abundance of dew that's on Mount, Mount Hermon. And if he's saying that dew would be found on Mount Zion. And what is on Mount Zion? It is Israel. It is the people of God. In the New Testament, Mount Zion is referred to as that kingdom of God in which the people of God, his church, dwell. This is what God desires for his people, for his church. That the abundance of rain, of provision, would be found in the church. This is the unity. When there's unity, that type of supernatural, abundant provision is found. And it brings about what? An abundant harvest. That's what, that's what Argentina experienced. And it, it, you, can, you can do some research on cities throughout the world have experienced similar type of outpouring of God's spirit. The gospel is proclaimed and ears are opened and the sinners, the lost, are saying, I want Jesus more than anything in this life. And people surrendered their hearts to Christ. Transformation, not just individual transformation, not just transformations in local churches, but city-wide transformations church. Bogota, Colombia at one point experienced this. They would have tens of thousands of Christians gathering together. And, and the, the, what God began to do in that city was absolutely amazing. Jesus said this. He said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 23, he's praying that they, that they, would, come, they would be brought to complete unity, referring to you and me. He prayed for you that night, not just for those, not just for the 12, but they is future generations, that they would come to complete unity so that the world might know that you sent me and have loved them. Church, wow. Awesome. That when the church is brought to complete unity, the world will stand up and say, wow, there is something different in the people of God. But right now, church, here is perhaps my greatest heartache. And that is because the world sees no difference from the church and itself. Moses said this. He said, God, because God said, look, 
they, they had broken the first two commandments. Moses coming down the Mount, Zion, Mount Sinai threw the tablets down as a symbol of you have broken the law of God and you have broken the heart of God. And God is saying, I'm, hold me back, Moses. I just, I, I want to wipe them all out. And Moses interceded and he went up on Mount Sinai and he pleaded with God because God said, I will not go with them. I'm going to take you, Moses. I'm going to create an entire new nation out of you. And this is what Moses said. But God, but I will send my angel. The angel had the, had the name of God in him. The angel could wipe out armies. Nevertheless, this is what Moses said to God. If your presence does not go with us, what will distinguish us from the rest of the nations. He was not focused on the, on the promises of God to bring them into the promised land. He was focused on the presence of God because when we have the presence of God, life is turned upside down. Sorry, I warn people who sit in the front row, I can sometimes spit on you. And I apologize, that came really close to you. Church, just pause for a moment and reflect on this truth. The abundance of provision falling upon God's people, bringing about an abundant harvest. Why? Because they learn to do life together in unity. And then he goes on and he says this. As a result of all of this, or stand back, he says. Stand back. It, I'm paraphrasing, sorry. He says, I'm going to command a blessing there. Now, my version says bestow. Maybe yours says charge. But this is the typical Hebrew word for the word command. Command. When, I'm going to tell you this. When God commands something, it's done. When Jesus was waked up and said, Jesus, Jesus, the waves, they're, they're, we're going to drown. And he looked, after, uh, looked up at him so compassionately. He probably did one of these oives. And then he just spoke the words. Peace, be still. And the scripture says the waves and the wind did what? They obeyed him. Jesus spoke the word. He commanded and they were stilled. When Jesus encountered the legion of demons in the man, he just spoke the word. Come out of him. And they came out. By a command, Jesus had authority over and commanded the demons to come out, and they had to obey him. When the sick were brought to him, he would regularly command, arise, damsel, and the dead young lady of 12 years old came to life. Only a word. He commanded it, and it was done. And when God looks down upon his people and he sees unity, he tells us here in verse 3, he commands a blessing over there. No, 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 no. Here. Right there. Right there where there's unity. That's where he commands the blessing. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. I want to get just a small picture of this so that we can see this, so we can read this with our own eyes that God is even in, at the inception of the church, when the Spirit of God falls upon them on the day of Pentecost, we immediately read that they devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, the fellowship, not just the concept of fellowship, but the fellowship. This is the fellowship, by the way, and prayers. 
Listen to what else God did. It says everyone, I'm in verse 43 at this point, Acts 2, everyone was filled with awe. And many, excuse me, many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. That word common is koinos, is from the word koinonia. They had all things in common every day, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, the Jews, the very ones who had crucified Jesus Christ, who viewed the church as some sect, some cult. That's why they feared him. That's why they feared Jesus and had to put him to death. He's doing something here. We don't like it. So they crucified him. But word's been getting around. He rose from the dead. And now look what he's doing in this, these people who are saying that they're following him. And they look on and their hearts change. The people of God began to enjoy the favor now of those who at one time had crucified their Lord Jesus and looked at the Christians, they're just a cult. Now, for that to happen, that, my friends, is supernatural. Now listen to this. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. God here has commanded a blessing signs and wonders, people gathering together, selling their possessions, the ch chapter 5 says, even their homes and fields, selling them and giving them to those in need, and so that they had all things in common. They, they saw needs, and they just gave to meet those needs. They sacrificed. They met together constantly. They did life together in unity. And there, God commanded a blessing. God added to their number every now and then, every other month, once a year. No? You're looking at me like a... What does the text say? God added to their number daily. There we go. God added to their number daily those who were being saved. My friends, this is what happened in Argentina. This is what I pray God will do in Sanford, what God will do in America, what God will do in this world, so that the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth, even as the waters cover the seas, Isaiah and Habakkuk prophesied. That is what I believe God wants to do in our midst. You see, when we are brought to complete unity, then the world will know. God the Father sent his son, and they will recognize this Jesus. He wasn't just some carpenter, some man who walked by the Sea of Galilee and purportedly did these amazing things. Yeah, right. He, no, he really did. He really, truly is the Son of God, and he is the Savior of the world. The world will know this when we learn how to do life together right. I want to ask you, do you know of someone in your local church, Powerline, here in this church, Safe Harbor in your church, that you're disunified with? That when you think about them, you grit your teeth. 
you say something like, well, God just tells me I got to love them, but I sure don't have to like them, right? Have you ever said that before? Come on, truth be told. Yeah, well, I don't have to like them. Oh, but that God would change our hearts, church. That God would somehow find a way to break your heart and for, for your flesh to be crucified so that Jesus Christ truly is living in me fully. Paul said it this way, that he no longer lives, but Christ in him. That is the flesh crucified. That's when love gets a hold of us. That's when it's willing to look beyond these simple, petty offenses. I say petty. Maybe some of you have been deeply wounded. Can I ask you this? Have you been wounded this way beyond repair? Have you been wounded to the point where the whole world looked upon you and crucified you? You get my point, right? So compared to what Jesus did for us and the love that he had for the world, I'm going to suggest that maybe our differences are petty. As deep as that wound is, and as hard as it is, maybe it's petty. Maybe it's something that if we surrender that hurt to God, that he can heal your broken heart. Can you believe that? That God can heal your wounded heart. Can I just tell you this? Before we moved to Florida, we were part of a church. I, I worked with the teens, and my wife and I, it seemed like it was a regular habit of ours, would somehow manage to get into an argument on our way to the church service. Has that happened to anybody else? No, I'm sure it hasn't. This is just my wife and I then. And you can all put your hands down. Oh, my goodness. No, as we would go to church, the church service, we would get into an argument. And of, of church, just so you know, I was always right. I always was right, but she could not get it. I, I prayed for her. So the truth is, by the time we got there, it didn't take but one or two songs. Can I just say there is something powerful about worship when we are declaring the truths of who God is, what he has done for us, and our hearts are softened. The Spirit of God begins to awaken our hearts and say, Mike, open your eyes. And it didn't take long. We would lean over, and we would eventually, um, we would say, I am so sorry. I was so stubborn. I was so ingracious. Can you please forgive me? And then the other would forgive. And can I just say, and, and, and I speak from my experience at this point, that when that happened with us, that God began to powerfully minister to our hearts because God commanded a blessing there. Several years ago, um, almost 20 years ago, I had a struggle with my brother Dan. My brother Dan, by the way, I'm counting the years, excuse me, um, 25 years before, 25 years before led me to Christ. I was 14 years of age. Now, if you do the math, you can figure out how old I am, right? And he began to speak truth to me when I was 14, back in 1976. And I'd grown up in a Christian home. My dad was a choir director. And as he began to speak truth, as he began to call me to Jesus Christ, the resistance I felt in my spirit waned, and the Spirit of God just began to change my heart. I, I believed in Jesus, and he transformed my life at age 14. Fast forward 25 years. My brother's visiting 
Uh, we're living in Orlando at this point, and he's visiting, and he says, and, and we're just talking, and I say, Dan, I need to share something with you. Because as we grew up, even though you led me to the Lord, for some reason, there's just been this competition between us. Can I just share something embarrassing with you? Four boys. There, there were five boys. My oldest brother wouldn't engage in these antics. My sister, of course not. But us four younger boys. Um, someone would just say, hey, you know, I did 50 push-ups the other day. Watch me. And he'd drop down. He'd do 50 push-ups. Well, the next brother had to do 51 or 60, and the next one had to do 70, and the next one just lied and said, well, I, I did 80 the other day. And so there was this constant competition between us. And I said, Dan, it's not just when we did that. It was in everything. And we grew up as a sports family. It was in our sports. Who won the most trophies? And now we had found Christ. And yet there was still this competition, tendency to put one another down. Hey, you're not that godly, or you know, you're not that humble. Apparently, they were more humble, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but it created such disunity. And I said, Dan, can you see what I'm saying? And we had a brother bonding moment at that point, some 20 years ago. And we, we repented and we apologized to one another. And we just said, you know, I, we purpose in our heart. Philippians 2, and I understand you guys, Safe Harbor, you've gone through Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. He was humble, he served, and he sacrificed. He was humble, he served, and he sacrificed to the point of death. That's when the, that's when the flesh is crucified. That's when unity can come in. When we're humble, when we serve and sacrifice. My brother and I, we did that. And God did something amazing and blessed our relationship. Ten years later, actually eight and a half years later, I get a call from him. He had fainted. I guess it was in a hospital or somewhere. He passed out. He was rushed to the emergency room, and they discovered he had cancer. Within a year and a half, my brother was gone. Church, I am so glad that eight and a half years, 10 years prior to that time, even though he lived in California, for some reason that's what he wanted to do, all of those thousands of miles away, we were friends. And I can remember flying out there about just a few months after he had been diagnosed with cancer. It, it, was, in his, um, it was in his intestines that had spread to his kidney, his liver rather, and it was enveloping his liver. There was a tumor in his brain. It had stopped growing, but within a year and a half, everything just suddenly exploded, and my brother passed away. I'm so glad that I had that opportunity. A year and a half before he passed, I flew out there, and we just loved each other. We talked, shared childhood stories. We laid aside our differences from the past. And I was so glad that just about eight and a half years prior to that, we had made a choice. We are going to do life in unity. And we've got to get rid of this selfish ambition, this arrogance, this competition. And God broke our hearts and he changed us. Can I ask you this morning, where are you in your relationship with your spouse? Where are you in your relationship 
with members in your family, members in your church? Have you been offended in some way? Because God wants to speak into that situation. If you will humble yourself, sacrifice and serve, if you yield to him, to his spirit, and allow him to crucify the flesh, God will command a blessing there for you in your marriage, in your home, in your church. This is his promise. We see it right here in Acts chapter 2. And people were added to the church daily. Church, if we can get to this point where we are willing to crucify the flesh and And we just say, it is not about me. It is not about Mike Curtis. It is about Jesus Christ. And that's it. I don't care if we believe a little differently. Jesus Christ is our Savior. And I will dwell with you. I will live with you. I will do life with you in unity. And when we can get there, church, our families are going to change. Our churches are going to change. Not just our local churches, but the scripture calls the city churches. It's going to change. God is going to visit us and command a blessing and he will be able to do far beyond what you are praying for or even imagining. And I can imagine a whole lot, church. He can do more than that. Can you stand with me? If we could have the lights, I I want to give you an opportunity for the Lord to just speak to your heart right now. For God to be able to say, hey, there's disunity here in your life. You've been infected with this wound and bitterness is beginning to come into your life and control you. Can you just come before God right now, all of us, and just say, okay, God, you have your way in my life so that you can daily command a blessing here. I want to open the altars. If you want to come forward for prayer, Pastor Franklin and I would love to pray for you. But right now, can you allow Jesus to heal your heart? You've tried for so so many years. But if you can yield to God's spirit today, right now, I believe he wants to do a miracle in your life. Father, I just thank you. You are so good. When I offended you with my sin and considered an enemy, you stepped down from your throne and you died for me. Spirit of God, I'm asking, please, change this heart. Heal the wounds, God, that we have experienced in life and command a blessing there. Heal there. God, make our lives fruitful. God, make our churches fruitful. Make your church fruitful and abundant in the outpouring of your spirit and doing things beyond what we can imagine or even pray for. God, this is our heart's desire. We cannot do this. We cannot change ourselves. Please do this in us, God. Right now in this moment, show us your your heart heart of the fa- our Father God to change, to heal, to reconcile, and to bring a blessing. Thank you, Jesus. You are so very good.